Welcome to Fun and Fundraising, everybody. The podcast where we talk with people behind the top galas and nonprofit fundraisers to show how they effectively raise funds to positively transform their communities. I'm your host, Rob Giardinelli. And today I'm really happy to have Melissa Pinkerton, who is the development director for the Texas and um, North Texas and Oklahoma chapter of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And what's interesting about this organization is we're actually going to do a special two-part episode today. So we're going to talk with Melissa first, and then we're going to talk with her counterpart in Southern Texas, um, because this organization is doing five galas in the top five Texas markets, one per market, in a single month. So it's a huge undertaking. And, you know, I can't wait to dive in with Melissa here and talk about all, you know, and talk about all the dynamics of that. So Melissa, welcome. I know you're an incredibly busy person. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. Of course. Well, you know, in Texas, we like to do everything bigger. So why not do (laughs) as many events as possible to raise as much money as possible? Absolutely. And, you know, the the cause is, you know, is a very important cause and it affects a lot of people. So um, for anyone who's not familiar, can you explain what the mission of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation is? Absolutely. Our mission is uh, we are looking to improve lives today and tomorrow by accelerating our breakthrough cure, prevent and treatment um, for type one diabetes. You know, we're along that path of you know, we let's prevent this terrible disease from happening, first of all, and then let's help the people who are currently living with it and come up with cures um, so they don't have to live with this devastating disease anymore. You know, and I, I'm glad that you bring that up. And it sounds like it's not necessarily just for children. I think there's a there's maybe a misperception among people that um, type 1 diabetes is strictly a juvenile, even though that is your main mission. It can affect people when they are um, older, like Mary Tyler Moore would be an excellent example of not being diagnosed until adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more people um, are being diagnosed later in life in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even 70s. So it is a disease that can affect you at any time um, of your lifetime. It's, uh, It's so interesting to see Um, how many adults that we're talking to on a daily basis that are newly diagnosed. You know, and that's, you know, it's interesting. And I want to, before we dive a little bit more into that, I want to, I want to talk about how you actually became involved um, with the organization because you're a development director now, but you also served as a volunteer beforehand. So tell me about, um, you know, what drew you to the organization initially and, you know, how you transitioned from a volunteer to, you know, the development director. Absolutely. It's a, you know, it's one of my favorite stories to tell people when I'm talking to them about getting involved with JDRF. Um, I used to work in the East Coast. I'm I'm from Texas, uh, but I did some time on the East Coast and I actually worked for an organization, um, Six Flags New England. And um, I was in charge of the philanthropic efforts of that park. I was the communications director. And they came to me and said, we host a walk here every October and you're in charge of that. Sure. What are we talking about? We're talking about JDRF, which I knew nothing about. Uh, You know, type 1 diabetes does not affect my family. Um, Type 2 does. So I am familiar with the disease. Um, So we hosted the walk. And I saw my first walk. um, And the park is closed in the morning time. So we were able to um, have people gather in our parking lot. And to see these families getting together with their themed T-shirts, surrounding their loved ones that live with type 1, marching through the park. I mean, it really brought tears to my eyes seeing my first walk. I was really emotionally um, connected to it from day one. Um, And then my park president and I, we dug in and we saw how great JDRF is with the funds they raise. They really do put their money to the mission. And so as a corporate partner, we said, yes, we want to connect with them on a higher level. So not only did we host the walk, Um, My park president was honored at the gala one year. He sat on the board, which meant I helped sit on the board. So that's how my volunteer journey started. And I did that for eight years. And when I decided to move home to Texas, the great state of Texas, um, there was a job opportunity open in the Dallas market. And I applied. And here I am almost 10 years later um, in this full-time position. So, you know, 18 years of partnership with this great organization. And 
philanthropic has always been in my blood since a child. So it really is great to live out your passion every day when you go into the office. That's incredible. And what I really like about that story is, is that you lived in one part of the country and you moved and you continued with the same organization. Um, you know, I guess my question is, and, and this is a question that I have just, you know, just the organically popped up here, but what advice would you give to somebody who's maybe working at a larger organization when they move from one market to another to get them involved? Because sometimes when people do move from one city to another, they may drop off and not volunteer with that organization anymore, even if they are on a national level. You know, it's just, it's something that's always been a part of my heart is to get involved in the communities where I live. So I think it's, you have to find your own passion and where that lies, whether it's something that affects your family personally, or something that just pulls at your heartstrings when you see maybe advertisements for it, or you have a friend that's connected to the mission as well. It's just a great way to jump in and really feed your soul um, with that purpose of helping others in your community. I really love that. And that sounds, I mean, that sounds, I mean, that sounds really great. And, you know, speaking of communities, you've got two galas of the five that are going on in Texas this next month. Um, so, you know, tell me, you know, a little bit more about, you know, because JDRF is a national organization. In your view, how does JDRF personalize the events so that it speaks to each individual community and chapter that it serves. And I know that, you know, in addition to Dallas and Fort Worth, you've also got a Tulsa chapter, a Waco chapter, you've got other chapters. How do you go about, you know, personalizing that for each individual community? Well, we take a lot of time in curating our events for each of these different areas. And we partner with our gala chairs um, who really help lead um, the charge when it comes to these events. And they really help us mold what it should look like for each of our um, different cities that we partner in. Fort Worth is a little more, I wouldn't say casual, but more uh, fun, relaxed atmosphere. Dallas is very, you know, long dresses, very formal. So we we curate each of those events to fit um, our guests who are coming. You know, and it's interesting that you say that because that's one observation that I've made over the years about Dallas and Fort Worth is even though they are in the same media market, they are very, very, very different cities. And I used to live in um, Tampa and Tampa and St. Petersburg is also a twin city. And anyone who's lived in like Minneapolis or St. Paul knows that they're very different cities. And just because you're in the same city doesn't mean that you're going to address you know, one part of the community or one side of the city, the same way that you may address, you know, another side of the city. So I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up that point. That's really insightful. Um, tell well, me, I think I was very lucky. I grew up in Arlington. If you're familiar with the area, yes. Arlington is smack dab in the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth. And in Arlington, we go to both Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, so I had a great vantage point of knowing, um, you know, personally, how each market differs. And I actually was in the the media market for a long time, too. So I, I see the different ways of pitching and knowing your different markets and how important it is to the people that live there that you're really listening to them and what they want to see at their events. So that's a good question. You know, that, that's a good point to bring up. What's a piece of advice that you would give somebody who has to address different segments of a community, whether it's within the same city or if it's, you know, a Dallas, Fort Worth, Twin Cities type of situation? Well, I think that's where you have to really lean in to your volunteer partners, um, as well as your boards. We have boards in both Dallas and Fort Worth, and we really lean in and listen to them. And they help curate and tell us what works best in their market. And of course, we look at best practices too across the nation. Um, maybe not everything applies like perfectly cookie cutter, but we're able to take these concepts and really mold them to the areas where we're at. I love that. And one of the things we talk about on, on this show quite a bit is about how I don't want to say there's no such thing as an original idea, but basically you make your own special idea pulling from best practices from 50 different ideas to create kind of your own your own special idea. So that's a really insightful point that you brought up. Um, so, you know, in, in terms, you were talking a little bit about the board and you were talking a little bit about chairs, you know, earlier. How, do, how does JDRF go about, you know, especially an organization that large, how does the organization go about selecting chairs for, you know, chairs for a lot of different events that happen in a lot of different types of communities throughout the country? 
Well, our chairs for both Dallas and Fort Worth are just incredible, and we are so blessed to be able to partner with both of them. Um, They're obviously tied to the mission. Um, Our Fort Worth chair, um, he actually lives with type one. He and his wife are chairing the gala, so he has that personal mission, and they have children, so they know how important it is to fund this great research and have these great events to where we are procuring money to fund research for the future of their children. Um, And then of course our Dallas, um, I've been able to partner with him for the last 10 years. He and his wife, um, Scott and L. Paul, um, they have a daughter with type one and they've been involved from the get, like the moment their daughter was diagnosed, they met with JDRF in the hospital. We gave them that bag of hope. And since then they've been involved. I've gone to Washington DC with them to speak in front of Congress um, about the importance of funding diabetes research to he was chairman of our board to now they are the gala chairs. And it really is all about an honor of their daughter, Zara, and how important it is for them to fund these great research projects that will ultimately lead to a cure. That's incredible. And you really hit on something on the head and you talked about it perfectly with both markets. One is, you know, you've got an adult with type one and you've got a child with type one, but you brought up the point that you ha- there has to be a... Per- in many cases, especially when there's a big amount of giving happening, there really does have to be a personal tie and connection. And, you know, in selecting chairs, you, you, you've been able to find really good ambassadors who can personally talk about how the organization positively impacts not only their families, but, you know, the future of diabetes and trying to find a cure for it. Absolutely. And these these two families are great connectors their sphere of influence reaches far and wide. So they're able to reach out and get new people into our ballroom and get the people to return each year. So they really are a great impact as connectors in our community. That's great. And it's important to have, you know, chairs that can really do that and have, I like to say are almost like octopi that they have to have kind of tentacles (laughs) that kind of go to various different aspects of the community, because, you know, really you want to make sure that, you know, you're bringing in, because there is no such thing as a fun event. If everyone's exactly the same, you have to have different segments of, you know, of your community in to really create something that is fun and dynamic and interesting. So, um, you know, I talk a little bit about um, what it's like to plan multiple large events at the same time, because this is pretty concurrent, because they're basically only, for you, they're only about three weeks apart. So how, what advice would you give to someone that needs to, you know, that's in a situation that they have to do that? Well, something that we really leaned in on, you know, during COVID, a lot of changes happened with all the different organizations. And we really had to work smarter um, and be more diligent on how we're spending our time because we really need to be focusing on the fundraising. Mm -hmm. And so one simple thing that we did is uh, we're applying the same theme to all four galas that we're partnering with Dallas, Fort Worth, Tulsa, and Oklahoma city. And that allows us to be, um, savvy with our creative. Um, It's all the same. All we have to do is go in and change some of the copy. With our decor, we're able to transport um, and just have the same look and feel and consistency with all of our galas across the board, which really helps us with time management. Absolutely. In addition to that, what I love about the template piece is that you're saving money by pulling all of your resources from all the markets together. And it sounds like based on what we were talking about in the green room before we started recording, you know, the organization has shifted, you know, because of COVID a little bit. Would you be able to just elaborate a little bit on how JDRF basically how it's evolved from four years ago to today and how and how you're structured in your community? Sure. Like every organization and corporation um, across the globe, there's been a huge shift and transition on how we're working. Um, Prior to COVID, we had a Dallas chapter, a Fort Worth chapter, an Oklahoma City chapter, a Tulsa chapter. So we had chapters everywhere. Well, what we've done um, during COVID is we've streamlined a lot of our processes to where we are now combined as one, what I like to call a super chapter. So we are the North Texas and Oklahoma chapter. So we are now serving Waco all the way up um, North Texas, all the way through Oklahoma. And we really streamlined a lot of processes to make us more efficient 
and doing things like sharing uh, gala themes and sharing walk themes. Um, walk is another pillar that we work on. Um, it really has helped streamline our process to where we are able to be out fundraising and making more dollars um, for the organization. That's really cool. And can you elaborate a little bit more on, are there any different approaches that you have to take with a smaller market like a Waco or a Midland or a Tyler or an Amarillo versus a Dallas, a Fort Worth or an Oklahoma City? Sure. Yeah. So we actually just hosted an event in Waco this last Friday. And that is just a smaller themed party. It was in a house, a personal house um, with our great chairs. Um, one of them, who is an adult living with type one, um, hosted it in their house. Um, and our chair, um, we had two sets of chairs and the other had a child with type one. So it was that great combination of an adult and a child um, living with type one. And they invited their friends, family and local corporations. So it was a smaller, more intimate event. Sometimes they call them parlor events, um, but it was food it was celebration. It was entertainment. And of course, we had an endocrinologist come in and talk about the great advancements in research and why it is so important to still give to JDRF and, and what we're doing with this money that you give. That's cool. So it, it, it's like it, it's almost like you took elements, what you were talking about with the Fort Worth Gala and the Dallas Gala, and you put it basically in a single space to allow really for a broader range of broader range of um of humanity to really kind of be seen and reach within a smaller space, but it also allows for that more personal touch and a deeper connection. And I know that we were talking in the green room about the larger markets. You actually do kickoff events. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on, you know, how, how that really helps propel and make a great gala, you know, on the main night? Absolutely. Um, we're hosting two gala patron parties coming up here for both Dallas and Fort Worth galas. And what that is, is an opportunity to bring in our sponsors as an early thank you um, to um, for their support and also bring in prospects. Who wants to learn more about JDRF? Who has a connection to type one? Who might be interested in your community of getting involved? So it's kind of a showcase of who JDRF is. We have a few great speakers that come up and talk about the organization. We'll bring in a doctor, an endocrinologist to talk about um, the advancements that have been made and the care that is taken for type ones um, and just how much of a better life they have now um, right. while we still work towards a cure. So these parties are meant to be fun, exciting, engaging, and get people geared up for the uh, awesome event that we're going to throw um, in April. Exactly. And it's, you know, it, it's one thing to just, you want to make sure that you're keeping people engaged. It's not necessarily that you want to throw five of those. You just want to throw one right. to really kind of kick it off, give people their marching orders. Like you said, bring, you know, new prospects in, whether it's a corporate sponsorship or a table sponsorship, or even, you know, an auction item, whether it's for a live auction or a silent auction or anything between. So that seems yeah. like it's a really effective way for you to not only nurture, but also acquire is, is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And we also invite um, some of our newly diagnosed families that are just new and in this world of shock um, on this new journey that they're on. So it really gives them that sense of community. And that's what JDRF is. We're a sense of community. We're the best club that you never want to be a part of. We're that warm <laughs> hug for your family. I mean, here in Dallas and Fort Worth, we're meeting you in the hospital. We're giving you this bag of hope. We're letting you know that we can set you up with a mentor, a family that has a child of similar age to get connected with, or an adult. So it really is that warm hug of community that we want to give um, at these events and at our galas and all throughout our journey with these new families. You know, the sense of community is really important. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about a gala is it's, it's a night, it, it's a celebration, but it's also a way to raise awareness to a cause and really kind of create and foster that community. And I'm sure you've seen over the years, you know, new friendships, lifelong friendships form based on going to these types of events. Um, do you have any, you know, examples of anything that you remembered or recalled over the years where, you know, something really magical started as a result of um, one of the galas that you hosted? Well, there, there's probably several examples that I can bring up. But one thing I do want to highlight, um, you talk about friendships and connections. Um, we have a JDRF Youth Ambassador Program that we are so proud of here in our North Texas, Oklahoma chapter. 
And these youth ambassadors are trained. Um, they go through a class and they are out speaking to the community about living with type one diabetes and what that means and what their support means to them and how we continue. So we bring these youth ambassadors to our galas and all of our events every year. Um, they have these great sashes that say, I'm a JDRF youth ambassador and they wear them proudly. Um, and they go around and they greet our guests and they steward our guests. They thank our sponsors. And I've seen these children grow from these little 17, seven year olds to high school seniors. And it really is awesome to see the friendships they've made um, within this group. So they have other type one buddies um, that help them along their journey. So it's not just, I'm not the only one in school going through this. Right. So to see those budding friendships and the leadership that these children feel you know, as a JDRF Youth Ambassador, it's just so empowering to where we have some of them speak on the stage. And it's really just, that's one of the greatest things that I've seen at our galas. Yeah. And it, it, it it's important that ambassadors are there to really kind of showcase what the organization, what the end result is. Um, and I've seen many, many, many organizations do that and do it really effectively. And it, it's good for people, especially donors, especially if they're going to be writing a five-figure check or paying a large amount of money for an auction item to see specifically who and what they're impacting. So I think that's fantastic. And it sounds like you're doing that at both of you know both of the galas. Can you talk a little bit about what guests can experience? Let's start with the Fort Worth Gala. And then we'll talk about the D Dallas Gala. One, because the Fort Worth Gala is first. And two, um, it's a little bit more casual so we can kind of ease people into the formalness. Absolutely. So the Fort Worth Gala is really just an incredible event. Um, it'll be held on April 1st and it's at the Fort Worth Zoo. How much more fun can that get? Um, so our guests will have a private interest into the Fort Worth Zoo. And um, our VIP guest will be um, escorted to an area where they actually get to feed the giraffes uh, prior oh, to the event. Fine. So what a once in a lifetime incredible experience if you haven't done that before. So um, that's just an awesome experience that we love giving our VIPs. Um, and prior to that, we're going to have our silent auction open, um, you know, cocktail hour where people get to come together that haven't seen each other. It really is that, again, that sense of community that's bringing everybody there for that mission. Um, and then we're escorted into the ballroom, um, which is a big, huge, fancy tent. Like, it's gorgeous. It's like, where did this come from? We're at the zoo. Are you sure? Um, so it's just beautifully decorated. The food is incredible. Um, and again, the decor, I mean, I just am blown away every year by what um, our partners do um, for the event. And then we have this great program where we have speakers that are talking about their experiences um, about type one. We have a very incredible mission moment, which we call fun to cure. And that's where people raise their paddles and they're giving money that is a hundred percent tax deductible that goes straight to the mission. And then of course we have a fun live auction, which always gets the crowd going. Um, and then we wrap up with some fun entertainment to really, you know, cap off the evening with a lot of fun. Um, and it's just, it's such a moving experience. Um, I just love being a part of it every year. That sounds real. I mean, that sounds great. And that sounds a lot of fun. And I've never fed a giraffe before. So, you know, <laughs> well, that come, on, sounds... come on up. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to for that. My gosh, that seems like too much fun to just be able to do that. Hopefully they don't eat my hand, you know, when I do no. that. So, <laughs> so and, and again, you know, now we'll talk a little bit about the Dallas event. And, you know, it shows the diversity of those two cities and the dynamism of each of their communities. So if, if you'd like, feel free to share, you know, what, what will be ha transpiring at the Dallas scale this year. Sure, absolutely. Um, on April 22nd, we'll be at the Dallas Omni Hotel, which is one of the iconic, you know, if you ever look at the Dallas skyline, you will see the Omni Dallas Hotel. And what's great about that is they can run our logo up the side of the building. So oh, there's just wow. true ownership of the city of Dallas with our logo um, going up and down the building all night. So it is, you know, helps with our awareness too. Who is JDRF and what are we doing? Um, so we also have a VIP reception um, at our gala and that's where we'll have our chairs in there greeting their guests and stewarding our VIP donors um, and some of our higher end sponsorship sponsors. Um, and then, of course, we go into the foyer where we have an expansive silent auction. When I tell you there are so, there's something for everybody, there's literally three things for everybody. 
Um, there and the is, opportun- and, and I can speak to that as somebody who's gone to stuff at the Omni before. I mean, it's a, I mean, it is a huge, and there's just, talk about the sky's the limit with what you can do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we actually have this specialized, what we call the barrel room, where we get these high-end wines and spirits donated that people really um, get feverishly bidding for. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> the ballroom doors open, and that leads us into the program, which is very similar to Fort Worth in the pattern of, Um, Some incredible speakers, our chairs get up and talk. We have that mission moment with Fun to Cure. And then our live auction in Dallas is one of the top in the nation. People go wild for our live auction. It's just like, it's just incredibly high energy. Um, You know, one of our items that has done well the past year is become a, a, get a private pilot's license. So one of our incredible board members owns Stature Aviation and he donates flight lessons to where you can earn your own pilot's lessons. And let me tell you, the bid cards go flying for that to where we sold it twice. Um, so, yeah, it's just high energy. And then um, we're going to close out with this band called the Spasmatics, which is incredibly fun. It's like a 90s, 80s cover band that they're all dressed up to where like after everybody's done all these amazing things, we get to let loose on the dance floor. So, I mean, again, one of my, it's the longest day of the year, but it's truly the best day of the year. It's fun. And then you go to bed and you don't wake up till Monday morning. Exactly. (laughs) You have to hibernate (laughs) for 24 hours afterwards. So um, Except for there's all the cleanup afterwards. Oh yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to bring up something that you brought up when talking about the auction and that is selling a package twice. So, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, talk a little bit about that for someone who may not be familiar with that. Cause that's something I've seen many, many times over the years, how you go about doing that and deciding what can sell twice and, you know, what determining a threshold for a dollar amount for that and those types of things. So yeah, that's it's a great strategy, and we we pair it differently for each of our live auction items that we are you know putting in to the hopper for potential selling twice. And what we do with that is we obviously want to double our money um, of the actual value of the item, and then we speak to the donors and say, hey, if we reach this certain cap, so for this private pilot's license, we said if we hit twenty five thousand dollars, do we have the opportunity to sell it twice? And it is up to our donor sector aviation to say yes or no. And we have these conversations well in advance uh, because that is a huge commitment from them. I mean, that's, you know, money that they're uh, putting in, but it's also great advertising for them as well. Um, So we have those conversations prior to the gala and we talk to our auctioneer. We have one of the best auctioneers in the system who we partner with and we know ahead of time, if we hit this level, I give him Mm -hmm. the go sign and he says, all right, and then he talks the bidder up who may be like 2000 off saying, Hey, come on for two more thousand, we're going to double this offer and we're going to raise $50,000. So it really is about setting those expectations early, talking to your donors and then connecting with your auctioneer and making sure everybody's on the same page. So there's no stuttering in the ballroom um, while that part of the program's going on. That's really fantastic advice and really a good way for an organization to, you know, to, really double their money on certain items that are really popular. So um, the last question is just talk a little bit about what specifically from these two events and really all your galas, where, what exactly do do the funds raise go towards? So uh, our funds raise go to uh, research. Um, There's so much incredible research that's happened in just the last 10 years Um, And we're lucky to have some research projects happening here in Dallas. But um, all of that money pooled from all of our events across the nation fund the incredible research projects. Um, We have a great board of directors that um, in our national office that um, disseminates the money to these specific research projects and partnership with doctors and everybody that they're working with to decide where um, these these funds should go. And it really is, you know, it's there's so much incredible research. That's why we have to continue to raise the bar and raise the, you know, funds at each of our events because there's so many great opportunities happen that JDRF needs to be funding. 
That's incredible. And it's good. It's great for people to know what the what the money is going towards, you know, especially with larger donors, you want to make sure that you're clearly conveying that. And Melissa, I just want to thank you so much for being a part of this today. This was really a great conversation for people to understand really how community dynamics come into play and how you've got to really speak and listen to your community, you know, your community. So I really appreciate your time. Well, I had a wonderful time. And thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of it. And Gosh, come check us out. We have some great events happening up here in North Texas, and we'd love to have y'all there. Oh, I would love to be a part of it. So I will make sure to check my calendar for sure. So <laughs> the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Fort Worth Gala is on April 1st, 2023 at the Fort Worth Zoo. And the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation Dallas Gala is on April 22nd, 2023 at the Omni Hotel in Dallas. For more information, visit jdrf.org slash North Texas, Oklahoma. And again, Melissa, thank you so much for the time today. Awesome. Thank you. And this is Rob Giardinelli signing off for the first part of the special two-part podcast episode. You can find me on Instagram at Fun and Fundraising. And the second part of this podcast will start right now. Welcome back to Fun and Fundraising, everyone. This is the second part of a special two-part episode where we're talking with members of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation in the state of Texas who are putting together five different galas in the top five major markets in Texas throughout the month of April. And today, I and for the second part, I'm really happy to have Amanda Mounts, who is a market director in the South Texas region, to talk about the three galas that are happening in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio, respectively, throughout the month. Amanda, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Well, let's start, my pleasure, and let's start by talking a little bit about, you know, what the mission of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation is. Absolutely. So JDRF, we are the number one global organization that funds type one diabetes research. Um, and on the way, we want to impact lives, right? So the goal is to impact lives and have our type 1 diabetics live longer, healthier lives until a, a cure is found. That's great. And speaking of, you know, when we were talking in the green room before, you have a very personal story in terms of how you've been involved in the organization. Would you care to kind of elaborate that really it's a lifelong thing for you? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know a life without type 1 diabetes. Um, my mother was diagnosed when she was nine um, in the 1970s. And so type 1 diabetes in the 1970s looked much different um, than it looks today. Um, we've come a very, very long way in terms of technology and growing up. Uh, like I mentioned, I was around it all the time. Um, but my mother always told me that testing your blood sugar at home was new when she was pregnant with me. And she attributes that advancement in technology to a healthy pregnancy. So I like to say I literally would not be here without JDRF funded research. So it's a very, very uh, personal cause, something that's close to my my heart. That's great. And, you know, if, if I understand it correctly, you know, it's while in some families, there may be only one person with JDRF. It's not necessarily the case, you know, in your case. And there there can, in certain instances, be a genetic component about that. Can you, can you do you care to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, part of what we do at JDRF is, is we, we're trying to figure out what causes type 1, right? We, we're funding research to cure it, um, but one day we want to be able to prevent it. And so that prevention arm of our research is especially important to me because um, my great-great-grandmother had type 1 diabetes. My cousin currently lives with type 1, as well as my mother that I just mentioned. And so um, there is a genetic factor. Um, but here in, in Texas, I, I talk to people all the time that oh my goodness, this is the first um, type 1 diabetic in our family. So it can be genetic. And, and there's some instances where it's the, the first time, right? A, a brand new, uh, brand new journey for certain families. Absolutely. And, it, you know, would you be able to elaborate a little bit on I just I'm really fascinated by the fact that you you don't know a life without a dude to your mother. Mm -hmm. How has how how much how much I don't want to say easier, but how much more um, manageable is it to monitor JDRF today versus like when you were a nine-year-old yourself and watching your mom have to deal with it on a day in and day out basis? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I think that the the number one thing that comes to mind is uh, what we call CGM, and that's a continuous glucose monitor. So what your blood sugar, your blood glucose level is, um, 
my mom used to have to prick her finger to know what it was. Today, um, if people watched the Super Bowl and they saw Nick Jonas, who's a type 1 diabetic, uh, advertise the Dexcom um, CGM, and that will tell you your blood sugar level in real time, right? And um, not only that, but it'll tell you what way you're trending. Uh, are you trending up? Are you trending down? Are you good to go? Um, and it makes life so much easier. Um, you don't have dramatic highs and dramatic lows. Um, and not only does that make your day-to-day life easier, um, especially if you're a child living with this disease and having to manage sports and school, um, but it also uh, complications. Uh, type 1 diabetes has uh, the risk of a number of complications due to the fluctuation in your blood blood sugar levels. And with the CGM, you don't have that. And so um, that's where we're going back to our mission, right? Improving lives, making um, type 1 diabetics live a healthier life, reducing those risks for complications until we find that cure. So for me, I can directly see it. Um, when I was nine years old, um, my mother had very dramatic highs and lows because there wasn't the tech out there that that could tell you what your number was in, in real time. But if a nine-year-old uh, young woman is diagnosed today, um, she'll likely be able to get on a Dexcom and, and know what that is. And um, so there is strike. I mean, the the how fast JDRF has funded this technology and this, this research is pretty fascinating to me. And just, if you think just a 30, 35 year time span. Um, so I've been able to literally see that um, directly impact people's lives. That really is amazing. So it's literally gone from, you know, watching blood, you know, come out of your mother's finger to basically yeah. now it's basically on your phone. And if I understand at Dexcom, there's like something you can kind of put like on your, I believe it's like on your arm and you basically like scan yes. it with your phone, correct? And it's that easy. Yeah, there are certain CGMs that you put it there and you scan with your phone, but Dexcom, you just, it's called, you know, it sticks right there on your arm and it broadcasts to your phone. Um, you don't even have to scan it, right? All you have to do is, is oh look my at gosh. it and it'll give you alerts. Um, you can share it with your, your mom or your dad. Um, so parents today love it because they can monitor their child while they're at school, right? And it gives them that that peace of mind. That's really And then incredible. before... Before the finger pricking, um, back in the 70s, um, my mother would, it was just a urine stick, right? And so that's oh all. Yeah. So when you talk about the 70s to the late 80s, early 90s, and then to now, you can literally see the direct advancement. JDRF was founded in um, 1970. So you can literally see the the impact that JDRF has had. You know, it, it's really great. And I was talking about this in a previous segment. I know like one of the first people to really vocally talk about it back then was Mary Tyler Moore, who I think she had a miscarriage yes. and she got diagnosed mm -hmm. after the miscarriage, I think is what happened. And she was a lifelong yeah. advocate for, you know, for the organization. She was, she was, and um, she unfortunately um, passed away, but her, her husband, um, he started the Mary Tyler Moore initiative, right? So Mary Tyler mm -hmm. Moore was actually uh, legally blind, right? So again, um, right. one of those risks for complications that you have um, when you live with this, this disease, um, and he's doing great work, Mary Tyler Moore did great work, um, but just the awareness piece of it. Um, but I remember growing up and uh, have very fond memories of Mary Tyler Moore and, and watching that, uh, that show, the Mary Tyler Moore show and just, um, she's, she's the inspiration, I think, to a lot of young women in particular, right, that you can thrive you can live Absolutely. with type one but you can also thrive and so um she was a great example of that and uh through her legacy we're still continuing to to fund um research and like i said mary tyler moore initiative um which is very specific um com risk complications that have to do with vision and blindness and that, that's an important thing to know that, you know, with, with a lot of medical conditions and especially something with JDRF, I know that people can get it like Mary Tyler Moore was an adult when she got diagnosed with it, but you can get diagnosed at every age. Some people have it their entire lives yes. and some people live with it, you know, as an adulthood, as an adulthood thing. And that, yep. you know, as with any medical, any medical malady that comes up, there can run the risk yep. of complications. Absolutely. And I don't know what would what I would prefer, right? Do you want to be diagnosed as a child and then you don't know a life um, yeah. without type one or an adult and get your childhood, right? I think some people that are diagnosed as adults have said, oh, Amanda, I just wish I, it was a, I was a child because then I wouldn't know better. 
and now <laughs> yeah, I do know I better. So it's kind of, you know, a toss yeah. up. So I understand that. And, you know, it, it, it's really great to hear you talk so passionately about it and speak from a place of knowledge really is something that's been a part of your daily life the whole time. And, you know, from there, let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the events that are coming up this in this next month and all that. And, <laughs> you know, one thing that I think would be interesting to know in your view is so you've got, you know, Gala's coming up in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. And those three cities are very different from each other. And, you know, it's funny because people are like, you know, Austin and San Antonio are going to become one big super city probably in the next 20 years, you know, like Dallas and Fort Worth are. But, you know, Fort Worth yeah. is a very different city from Dallas. So you've got to yes. really kind of pay attention and, you know, do, do the right focuses on each community. Tell me how you all as a national organization do that to address the local needs of the various communities, large and small that you have. 100%. And it's so funny. I, I chuckle when Austin, San Antonio are going to merge into one. I don't, I don't care how geographically close we get. We will never be Austin, San Antonio. We will never, and uh, you know, vice versa. Austin yeah. will never be San Antonio. San Antonio will never be Austin and Houston, right? We just, right. we are so distinctly different from one another. And one of the things at JDRF that we do very, very well um, is we have a blueprint of what we know works, but we have the ability to customize our events and what is going to appeal to the audience, right? And I think that's the number one thing. What are our goals for fundraising? That's to raise money and raise awareness. And how the way you do that in Austin is different than the way you do it in San Antonio. Um, and I think that's how we do it is we have a basic blueprint. Um, every single JDRF gala has what we call Fundicure, and Fundicure is trademarked. So that's your call to action that evening, your the paddles up portion, if you will. So we have a good base, um, but then we customize. So in Austin, Austin, we have the one party. And so the one party, um, their board um, a couple years ago came up with this idea not let's lean into Austin rather than trying to to make something fit. Um, and so they called the ungala. Um, and and one party um, traditionally started with the one classic during the day mm -hmm. and then having the gala event at night and calling it this one big party. Um, and this year, because pickleball is um, sort of hot right now, right? It's it's, it's the all new the rage. thing. Um, and so, and I've never played pickleball before, but I, you know, it's people love it. And so, um, instead of adding tennis, really leaning into that, okay, let's do pickleball, let's do the golf tournament and then the one party and only Austin could throw that much partying into one day. I think if you tried to do that in San Antonio or in Houston, people, I, I, I think I would be tired by the end, you know? but in Austin, it works and people love it. And the evening portion is not fancy black tie. It's lean into the theme each year, right? Um, and JDRF really allows nationally allows us to be able to do that. Okay, let's let's really lean into the community in Austin and have this one party, ungala, not formal black tie. Um, and being able to to support us in that and really work with the local community. So the the golf tournament is at a municipal golf course mm -hmm. um, versus in San Antonio. We do do a one weekend, but our golf tournament is at um, the Hyatt Hill Country Resort in San Antonio. A um, little bit more formal. And then the, the gala, the promise ball the next night is more formal, still with a San Antonio flair. Um, but Austin is this more casual ungala type of event. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Houston, which is much more traditional type of event. Um, and to further elaborate down to our script and our programming, um, we probably have a lot more joking going on in San Antonio, a lot more lightheartedness, um, a lot longer of a program. Um, because traditionally, um, the galas in San Antonio are, are a little bit longer and um, Houston's a little bit more formal um, and Austin is, is not. So we literally have it across all ends of the spectrum, just these very different, but also very much the same events. Um, you still get that same JDRF feeling, but customized towards the audience. Um, so that, that's kind of how we do it in Southern Texas. And I think we do it really well. Um, we, 
we like, we don't want to put our audience in a box or our donors in a box. We want to meet them where they are. Um, and post COVID, it's been a challenge, right? Uh, Absolutely. How do you, how do you do this? Um, and we've just really listened to people. And I think that it's been working for us very well. Yeah. And I know as an organization, we talked about this in the first segment that in Dallas, it was like a bunch of local chapters and then they wound up kind of merging everything together. Yeah. And it was North Texas and Oklahoma before yeah. you knew it all because of COVID. So it's, you know, yep. people have really had to pivot and it's almost like, you know, you have multiple personalities and mm-hmm. you've got to figure out, um, you've got to figure out who you are before with who you are now with this thing that really affected every single human being on the planet in one mm-hmm. way or another differently in some yeah. ways, similarly in another. So it's it's really interesting to see how that's had to evolve with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, not to get too uh, in the weeds or, uh, but even down to raffle, right. And mm-hmm. raffle, laws and and what we can and can't do as a national organization but having you said north texas oklahoma fort worth austin san antonio corpus christi um we've got a great um type one diabetic community all the way out to uvalde how do you manage all of that um in this combined like you said i like that multiple personality world so we've i think some of it is you just figure it out as you go (laughs) Well, you, you and you and with COVID, I think everyone kind of um had to do that, and it definitely feels with events that I've noticed. You know, going since COVID restrictions have lifted, there's definitely more risk is the wrong word, but there's definitely more of an openness to thinking outside of the box and just trying new and innovative things. And I think having a pickleball yep. tournament is the perfect mm-hmm. example of that, that may not have been something someone may have been like, okay, let's try to do this hot new thing. And, and in Austin, where it, a lot of it's about hot new trends, it may, that makes a lot of sense to do that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the one party in Austin last year raised 3.6, over $3.6 million. Yeah. Um, and so they, they're, the Austin community rallies around JDRF Um at JDRF, we don't pretend like we're something that we're not, right? And right. Um, I think that it's it's just, it's been really fun to see. And um, that's one of the most successful, um, I think in each city, we're definitely um, Fort Worth, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, Houston. We definitely compete um, with a lot of other nonprofits, but in terms of fundraising, yeah. um, we're, we're up there in, in each of those cities. Um, but I would say in Austin, most definitely uh, $3.6 million gala. Um, it's, it's hard, it's hard for other nonprofits to compete with that. And I think it's because the community has just leaned in and had fun with it. Um, and it's, that's what that event is all about is fun and partying for a good cause. Um, and so it's been really neat really neat to, to see that come together and to emerge out of COVID. Um, but even still, I will say in San Antonio, the San Antonio community probably would have had a large gala um, in 2022, but as a national organization, we decided to keep it virtual mm-hmm. um, or I'm sorry, in 2021, we decided to keep it virtual until 2022. So, um, but Houston was okay with virtual. So I think mm-hmm. that that was another challenge through COVID that we had to manage because San Antonio would have thrown a huge type of, you know, there were right. uh, nonprofits all around town. Um, but Houston was no, absolutely not. Let's stay virtual. So we had to manage all that and figure out, okay, how do we then do virtual? And now it's okay. How do we shift from virtual back to in, in person? So you know, Amanda, you did just did an excellent job really kind of explaining the differences between the three cities. Tell me how, how, you know, I think that's a good segue into the next part of the conversation. And that is, you know, $3.6 million is a really effective amount and a great amount of money to raise. And in order to do that, you need effective chairs. Tell us about how you select chairs that really allow for that type of amount of money to be raised, because you're not getting that from one box. You're getting that I think I used the octopus effect um, when I was talking with yeah. um, with your counterpart earlier that y- you really need to be able to reach into multiple tentacles in the community to raise that amount of money. Yes. 
Yeah. And that looks different in each city, right? So if you're talking about Houston, which is a huge, huge city, um, you have to have those, those tentacles to reach out into different um, societies, different groups, right? If you're talking about San Antonio, that pool is smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, Austin, maybe a little bit bigger, right, mm -hmm. than, than San Antonio is. Um, so it's different in each city. But um, we have a great org chart, what we call, and um, a chair, co-chair, um, and chairs for each entity um, and really looking at that. Um, okay, how, how many of our tables were corporate? How many were social? Do we need a social chair? Do we need a corporate chair? What type of committee um, and, and that we really just sit down and build out. We have a basic org chart, but we build it out each year um, based on what the um, participation was the year prior. And we select and we go from there. Um, but we have a chair for everything. <laughs> so that's, light, it, that's smart. That's how it works for us. Light hands or many hands make light work. Right. Um, is what we like to say. Um, or we in San Antonio, and I'm a big sports person, uh, deep in the bench, right? Uh, we've got a, a strong bench. Um, and that's, you know, sometimes it can be difficult as a nonprofit professional to manage multiple committees and personalities, but it's really work. The more people you have, the more arms you have reaching out into the community. And I love that saying because it's really true and that's how we build it out. But also one of the things that has really worked well for us is having that secession plan. So like you're having every year by the time 2023 event is happening, having the venue and the date and your chair for next year selected um, and just asking, get, getting in the habit of, knowing who the next person in line is, right? Um, so I think that that's also how we select chairs as well, is making sure that we're always having the next person in line is always right there and involved. And that usually works because if you have someone that knows they're going to be the chair for mm -hmm. next year, they're going to pay extra close attention this year, thus making it easier and easier every year that you do it. So... Well, and it, it, that, that's a really good point. And you brought up two really good points. And one is having chairs that are already kind of in place. And what I'm finding increasingly, especially with the organizations that are raising a million dollars plus, a lot of them are asking for two-year commitments. And that two-year commitment can be in different ways, shapes, or forms. Sometimes it's you're a co-chair, yes. then you're a chair. With yours, it sounds like if you've got mm -hmm. them in place not that they shadow the chairs, but they definitely are kind of involved so that they kind of yep. they are going in with a base of knowledge so that they can go and take and put their own spin, spin. on whatever it is that they, you know, what they want to do to mm -hmm. take, keep taking the event to the next level from, you know, the previous yeah. years in doing that. Yeah. You yep. know, yep. I, I, I think that, I think that's really, you know, really awesome. And the other thing that's really important is, is that, the planning for next year's gala begins the day after the current year's gala. Like it's yeah. a, you know, when you raise a lot of money, yes. it is a year round commitment. It doesn't just magically happen. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. I'm going to start saying that, that we start planning the day after or even the night of, of that. I would definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, everybody's, if you're talking about corporations, fiscal years are different, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't say we're only going to solicit between this in this time frame. Well, that doesn't work right. for everybody. So um, I think that that's a, a good way to put it is that it doesn't just magically happen and things take time, right? They really do. And just to be able to allow it to take time and not and if you plan it for a year out, it definitely puts a little bit, I don't want to say less pressure, but it makes the, you know, it makes the workload around that more manageable. That might be a better way of talking about it. It does. It does. And and we joke in um, South Central Texas, right? We have to have a certain amount of chaos in order to feel like <laughs> we're thriving, right? Um, because that's just how it is, right? If you're in fundraising, you know you love it, right? You know you love that chaos a little bit. But if you can make it less stressful, chaos and stress are mm -hmm. two totally different things, right? We love a little bit of the chaos and um, the the sort of the high that you get from from putting on these these types of events, but anything to make it less stressful um, 
I'm always all for. Um, and I think that just goes back to planning. Absolutely. I completely, completely agree. It really planning is such a critical part to any large amount of fundraising. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I just, I'm in awe that you are doing three in really, it, it's three in back, I believe it's back to back weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Pretty much. Houston, I mean, that's, Austin, San Antonio. L- yeah. l- like, like one after the other, after the other. So what is yes. a piece of advice that you would give to an organization that is looking to do multiple events in a short period of time. They may be within their community, or it could be that they're a larger organization looking to expand into other markets. Yeah, uh, I think my number one thing to say is have uh, roles and responsibilities. Have your org chart internally, externally with volunteers. Identify your roles and responsibilities out the gate, right? Even down to the little things like who's going to do social media and our emails leading up and the day of, I mean, define everything so that everybody on your team, whether it's your staff or your volunteers, you know the full scope of what each individual, what their cog in the wheel is um, so that you can get moving. That would be my number one thing. And I think that's the way Southern Texas is able to execute three, right? Mm -hmm. We're not just crazy. We were able to to do it because everybody has their role and then be able to let go of that, right? Um, You don't have to know what all the other cogs are doing because if, if, if you try and do that, you, it won't be successful, right? Um, You can't have a 30,000 foot view on, not everybody can have a 30,000 foot view. That would, that's just unrealistic. And I think sometimes um, control enthusiasts, if you will, especially in not the nonprofit where you want to have your hand in everything and you just have to let go, define those roles, define those responsibilities, give it to a volunteer you trust and let it go, help them, but let it go. That's how we're able to, to do three back to back to back is clearly defining that. And, and then once you define that, you have your plan and then you execute. Um, But that would be my, my number one piece of advice is, you got to know what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> you have and, to know what everybody's doing. Well, so. I love that because you don't know what everyone else is doing. What I took from what you just said is, is that basically you can be your own yardstick. So if you're work, if you are just focused on what you're doing and doing the best that you possibly can, and everyone does that and takes that approach, it really creates a special, a special moment and a special night for everybody. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the person that manages the silent auction, they literally, quite frankly, don't have the capacity to know all of the other logistics happening, right? So let people own things, um, let go of it a little bit, because if you try and control everything, you can't be 10 places at once. Uh, I know we want to be, but um, in order to do things 100%, you have to pick those things, identify those things and do them one, to, to your full capability instead of spreading yourself too thin. And I think that in this post COVID world, that's where burnout happens, right? Absolutely. You take staff reductions, you, you want to take it all, but um, people want to help. And I think that's the biggest thing that, that I've learned through COVID is that People want to help. And it even might be your biggest donor that will want that wants to sit there and stuff envelopes with, with you. Right. right. And, and sometimes you forget to ask those things. And um, people want to help more than I think people realize. So, well, I think that is the absolute perfect place to perfect place to end. And it's really I love that you you know, you bring in, you know, people just because they cut six figure checks or more doesn't mean that they're not willing to roll their hands up. And yes, there may be some donors where that's the case, but a lot really do want to get involved in the day to day. And especially an organization Mm -hmm. like JDRF, a lot of times someone's going to be very emotionally tied. So they want to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just the monetary contribution. It's the contributing forward to the next, next generation, next community or next family. Absolutely. That's where the magic happens, right? Is in those <laughs> those moments of stuffing envelopes or organizing auction totally. items. That's where all the magic comes together. So absolutely. Well, Amanda, I can't thank you enough for for being here today and sharing about these three great events that are coming up. Um, I know you're incredibly busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time today. 
Well, no, thank you so much. And I'm happy, happy to be on your podcast anytime. I'm very thrilled and, and honored. Absolutely. So the Houston Promise Ball is on April 15th, 2023 at the Hilton's Americas in Houston, Texas. The One Party 2023 is on April 21st or 22nd? Friday. Friday, Friday. 20, Friday the 21st, 2023 at the AT&T Hotel and Conference Center in Austin, Texas. And the San Antonio Promise Ball is on April 29th, 2023 at the Hill Country Resort and Spa in San Antonio, Texas, all of which benefit the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. For more information, visit jdrf.org slash Southern Texas. And again, Amanda, thank you again for the time today. Thank you. And this wraps up this special edition of Fun and Fundraising. You can find me on, on anywhere you find your podcast or on Instagram at Fun and Fundraising. Additionally, you can find me at my website, godiningfordollars.com. This is Rob Giardinelli reminding you, keep it fun, keep it interesting, and your guests will have a great time. Have a great day, everyone, and take care. <laughs>